Father, I pray that today as we hear your word, as we've already sung truths from your word, as we've heard your word read, as we will hear your word um, just preached and um, explained, Lord, that, Lord, you would sow for yourself righteousness. And then as you sow righteousness in us, that you would reap for yourself a steadfast love in us. Father, I pray that you would break up the fallow ground and that for us, that we would see that now is the time to seek you, that we may seek you and we may come and that you would send down the rain of your righteousness upon us, Lord, even today, Father. Father, give us good news. May we, as I've been praying all this week, may we be stirred up towards love and good works. In your name we pray, amen. Oh, thank you. You can be seated. And um, let me again, as Pastor Derek has already done, let me say a word of welcome to you. It's good to see you. And some of you have even filled in in the middle. And so, uh, you know, just pay attention because you're on camera. No, you're not. You're not on candid camera. They can't see you at all. So you're fine with that. Um, and so let me just say again, gosh, it's good to see you. And I know some of you, um, it's been a while since you've been here in an in-person gathering, certainly nobody was here last week, and it's just uh, so much better whenever we gather together in person. And so if you are joining us with a live stream, keep your Bibles open to Jeremiah chapter 29, and that's where we find ourselves, and we see the context for a very popular verse that maybe one of the most popular Bible verses uh, in the Bible would be probably Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, many of you have probably seen it at Hobby Lobby or at Hallmark on a card, but you see here the very setting and the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. And we say that context matters and it does matter, but the setting and the context for Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't a graduation. It's not some other change of life. It, it probably seems odd that we would, we would use it in those types of settings. It seems odd that you would see it um, on a, even though it's, it's eternally true, but that when you understand the context that we would use it on a plaque or hang it up or put it on a tattoo, because here's the context. The context is the Babylonian captivity. The context is exile. It's, it's deportation and destruction of God's people in God's place. That's what's happening in this text. Last week, um, we, we talked and we've been laying groundwork, Israel, the kingdom to the north. And so right now it's divided kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah in the south. Israel has been laid to waste, done away with. They've already been exiled. 150 years has transpired about that, where we are today. Last week, we looked at uh, a king by the name of King Josiah. And we said that King Josiah led Judah in a time of revival in a time of reform, that the, that the book of the law had been found in the temple. They read it. He called the people to repent. They repented. They began to worship the Lord again. And the Lord began to bless his people again. But that time has now um, gone and passed. And so you have like a, from, from Josiah on, there's only four more kings left in Judah until the Babylonian captivity, captivity and exile. And um, the second of those kings, uh, a man by the name of King Jehoiakim, he returned the people to corruption and to idolatry. He undid almost everything that Josiah had done. And we saw the people, if you read in Kings and in Chronicles, 2 Kings and Chronicles, and you read in Jeremiah, you will see the people returning to their idolatry. The last king is gonna be the King Zedekiah. Babylon is now the superpower. It's no longer Assyria. Assyria is conquered by Syria. Then the Egyptians will conquer the Syrians. 
And then the Babylonians will take over. And so the Babylonians are the big boys on the block. Their king is a man by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. We saw him in the text of scripture. But this isn't the first time we've talked about Babylon. Remember all the way back in, I don't know, maybe like week number six of this series, all the way back pre-COVID-19, all the way back in maybe the month of uh, January or February, we preached a sermon. We looked at Genesis chapter 11. We saw that the people built for themselves a tower and that tower, they said, is a tower that we want to reach the heavens. We want to be as high as God. And we said that what's happening in that tower is it's uh, the pinnacle or a, a portrait and a picture of man's pride. And it's called the Tower of Babel. And now what we have here is the city of Babylon. We'll see Babylon again. It'll show up towards the end, maybe the last week of the year that we preach, all the way in December when we get into the book of Revelation. We're going to see the rise of Babylon. And as St. Augustine said, whenever you see Babylon in the Bible and it's a rhythm throughout scriptures, that what it represents is it represents the city of man. And that's what's happening here. The Babylon is the city of man. And what you have is you have the people of God being deported, being exiled, being taken out of the city of God, Jerusalem, Zion, right? The holy city. And they're being sent, thrust, exiled to the city of man. And that's a, that's a couple of great books have been written on that, one of them um, by Augustine. But nevertheless, before, before the, the Babylonians will lay waste to Jerusalem, but they will do that, the Babylonians will pretty much destroy the city of Jerusalem, tear down the walls. The temple will be pretty much destroyed. All the gold, bronze, and silver of the temple will be carted off, taken into into Babylon, but before they did that, they would exile the people. They would deport the people. They would go into Judah and they would take their, their taking. That's what's happening now. Is they're, they're taking kind of the, the cream of the crop, if you will. They're going through and they're taking, as we saw in the text, the craftsmen, the warriors, uh, the, the metal workers, the nobles, those types of people are being taken out of the city of Jerusalem. And what's being left is the poor, the weak, some of the farmers, not because they're poor or weak, but the farmers are being less, left so that they can continue raising crops and they can be exported and taken into, um, into, Babylon, into Babylon. But that's what's happened is it's coming in waves. And the first wave has already occurred. They've already taken a bunch of people out of the cities. In fact, they've already taken a man by the name of Daniel. So Daniel in the Bible, he's one who will be taken from Jerusalem, taken into Babylon. His name will be changed to uh, Belshazzar. The prophet Ezekiel has already been taken, but Jeremiah has remained. In fact, a thread that runs all the way from Josiah where we were last week, all the way to the end of the Babylonian captivity is the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. The Jeremiah will prophesy to Judah for almost 50 years, to Judah and to the nations. Like God has laid this charge on Jeremiah, that Jeremiah, you're, you're prophesying and preaching. We always talk about where are they prophesying? Where are they preaching to? Jonah, it was to Nineveh. You know, we look at Israel is to, uh, I mean, uh, Isaiah is to Israel. Jeremiah is to Judah and also to the nations. And we see that even here as he's writing this letter that we delivered to those that have been in captivity in Babylon. I don't know what fills your mind when you think about the Old Testament prophets. Sometimes you think of dudes with long beards and, that's, uh, that's maybe true that most of them probably did have long beards. We're shooting for that as the men of the Point Community Church. We just want to look like the prophets of the Old Testament. 
as we grow our beards. Uh, I have pastors oftentimes will ask me, say, does, every, does everyone um, at the point have a beard? My answer is no. Um, some people don't. They're the ladies. And so uh, that's where we're just trying to look. Well, you may picture surly, gnarly old men screaming and, you know, hollering at the people. Um, that may be what you think of when you think of the Old Testament prophets, but it's not true of Jeremiah. The Jeremiah bears the nickname of the weeping prophet. And as you read the book of Jeremiah, what you'll see is you'll see a man who is heartbroken. He's heartbroken for his, the nation. He's heartbroken for the people of God. He's heartbroken by their idolatry. He's heartbroken by the words that he has to say. Early on in Jeremiah's ministry, Jeremiah will say, God, you tricked me. When you called me into ministry, you tricked me because I didn't wanna say the prophecy. I didn't wanna speak your word, God, but I couldn't help it. And what he says is, he says, fire has shot up. Fire has shot up in my bones. I couldn't contain it. I couldn't keep it in, God. But he says, God, you've tricked me into sharing this bitter news with your people. Jeremiah, even though he grieves, for the most part, Jeremiah will be rejected. His message will be rejected. He'll be rejected by the kings. He'll be rejected by the people. In fact, one of the kings, Jehoiakim, he will burn one of Jeremiah's scrolls. And what we have in Jeremiah 29 is we have a letter being written from God through Jeremiah to the exiles, those who have been deported, who are now living in Babylon the city of man. Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed just a short few years later. The temple, as I said, will be leveled, all of this. And that's the setting, that's the context. Now, I think it's an important context for us. I think this, this message in Jeremiah 29 is an important word for Christians living in 2020. Of all of the things that we've witnessed in 2020, a global pandemic, maybe upheaval and uprising, racial tensions, of all of the things that we've witnessed, I think one of the things that you and I are witnessing that is a historical changing, a history changing event right now is I think that we are witnessing the death of Christendom. I think what we're seeing right now taking place in current events, events is the death knell of Christendom. And what I mean by Christendom is, I don't mean Christianity you, uh, you can't stomp that out. You can't stop that as we talked about last week even. But I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the end of, of, of Christianity being popular. Like even as I share with my, with my children and as we have discussions about this, my wife and I of what we're seeing happening uh, in, on social media, in the news, in our culture is, is Christianity has become at an all time like low as to, as to its popularity. It's, it's, and when I mean Christianity, what I'm really getting at is, is, the, is the Christian culture. It's the morals and the, and the Christian ethics and Christian laws and Christian philosophy that I think for it, what we've seen in America is really an anomaly. That you and I, as we look back on history in America, that for the past 250 years, that what we've seen is we've seen uh, Christianity kind of being popular again, or at least the, the ethics and the values of Christianity that by and large, the, the people of America, they would have shared, the, the majority of people would have shared 
a Judeo-Christian ethic, a a Judeo-Christian values, whether they worship Jesus or recognize God, but nevertheless, the values would have matched up, the values of the Bible, the laws written would have matched up what we've seen in our culture. But what we're seeing right now, and I I don't, like, I'm not a prophet of doom and gloom. Like, in fact, just the opposite. We're gonna see this throughout this text. I wanna inspire hope in you. But what we're seeing is, is what was once popular is being now pressed into the margins that I believe what, what, what's, what's happening over the last probably maybe 50 years if we move from a Judeo-Christian ethic to, a, to a, a non-Judeo-Christian ethic. And I think what we're entering into, maybe into the, a few years into is a, a non-Judeo, I mean, it's an anti-Judeo-Christian ethic. I think it's an anti-Christianity I think we as Christians and those of us, again, I'm using that in a, in a broad sense, but what I'm really getting at is people that follow Jesus, that believe the Bible as the inspired, work, uh, the inspired word of God, those of us who really believe that and allow the Bible to shape our worldview and allow the Bible to shape our values and our, and, and our, and our morals and our, and our living and all of those things, I think that we, by and large, we are gonna get pressed into the margins. But let me just say this to you. Christianity historically thrives in the margins. That as a father and as a pastor, that man, I, I kind of welcome what's happening because what you see globally is when Christianity is less popular, when it's pressed into the margins, it thrives in the margins. And you see that throughout, throughout um, the Bible as well. And that's what we're seeing here in Jeremiah 29, 11. I think it's applicable to us because what we see is it answers the question of how do we live and how do we act when we find ourselves living in the city of man? How do we live in a foreign land when the culture around us no longer fits everything that we thought it did? When the culture around us, the values that are around us is no longer familiar to us? And here's what we see in this text. Here's God's word to his people. Three things. Number one is to be confident because God is sovereign and he's good. Number two, settle in. Take up residency in this foreign land. That's his word. Number three, go to work. Seek God for the good of the land. And like I said, those are great application points for us. What do we need to be busy doing right now um, as Christians? I don't know that that we need to be screaming and memeing on social media as much as we're praying and seeking the Lord and doing these things. Number one is being confident because God is sovereign and he's good. We see that in the text. Look at the tension in the text. There's always tension whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God. It is something difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but look at even in this text in four short verses. Notice what it says in verse number one. It says, whom Nebuchadnezzar has taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's who he's writing the letter to. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet, he's writing them to, look, those whom Nebuchadnezzar has taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then look at verse number four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I, that's God speaking in the first person, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So which one is it, God? 
Who sent the children of Israel? Who sent the people of Israel, the Judeans? Who sent them out of Jerusalem into Babylon? Was it Nebuchadnezzar or was it God? Yes, it was God working through Nebuchadnezzar. It is God. It's not happened by accident. This hasn't happened because God has somehow somehow forgotten the people. It's not happened because Nebuchadnezzar is more powerful than God. It's not happened by Nebuchadnezzar alone, alone, but it has happened under the sovereign hand of God. Now their exile is is come as a judgment of sin. Their exile was consequences of them breaking the Mosaic covenant all the way back to the promised land. You could stay in the promised land as long as you follow the God of the promise, the one who's made the promise. You could stay in as long as you follow the law. Don't break the covenant. Worship God, love God. And they've done that. God, they've broken the law. They've broken the covenant. God has sent faithful prophet after faithful prophet that's called them to fidelity to God, called them back to the law. Sometimes they've listened, sometimes they haven't. They persecuted and killed the prophets. They've hated listening. They've repented and then they've returned back to idolatry. This is what's happening. Now what's happening is coming because of God's uh, judgment coming upon them. But here's what we also see, that even though this is the sovereign hand of God, even though this is a sovereign decree, sovereign decision of God, even though God has raised up an evil king like King Nebuchadnezzar for such a purpose and such a time as this, God is allowing all of this. Yet what we see is we see God's judgment that never negates God's goodness. Not only do we see God's sovereignty in and through this, not only do we see God's sovereignty coming through judgment, but we also see God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace shining through. That's what 11 is all about. Let's back up and we'll look at verse number 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, then I'm gonna visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. That's Jerusalem. For I know the plans, there's the verse, that I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Look, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and you'll pray to me. Again, they're under God's judgment. And yet he says, look, you're gonna pray to me and I'm gonna hear you. Verse 13, and you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortune and gather you from all the nations and and all the places where I've driven you, where I've taken you, where you've been scattered, where you've been deported, where you've been exiled, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Goodness, that text of scripture is filled with the goodness of God. It's filled with the mercy of God. It's filled with the faithfulness of God. That God is both. He is both sovereign. That means he is in complete control. God's sovereignty just doesn't mean that God knows everything. It just doesn't mean that God sees everything. That's God's omnipotence. But this is sovereignty means God controls everything that nothing is outside of his control. God is in control of all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's one truth about God, that he is sovereign. The second truth that we reconcile together that sometimes can be hard when we think about pain and when we think about suffering especially is that God is good, that God is always good. He does no evil. He is incapable of doing evil. Pastor John Piper says, these are the two pieces of our theology that we're 
constantly constructing, that we're constantly working on, that we're constantly crafting, that we're constantly building out in scripture is God's sovereignty, but God's sovereignty never negates God's, God's uh, goodness. And God's goodness never negates his, his sovereignty. Those two things working hand in hand, we're always reconciling those two things together. In fact, looked at verses eight and nine. They're so important. They seem like they don't really fit within this text, but they do. Look at verse eight. There's a word of warning in verses eight and nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, look, do not let your prophets and your uh, diviners, no, that's not right, but who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie and they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now think about this. Your family has just been split up. Your, if you're a female, your oldest son, possibly your husband, possibly your father, has just been carried off, just made to do a 700-mile march. Right? It's reminiscent of other things we've seen in war. They just made to do a 700-mile march from Jerusalem to Babylon. You'll never see them again. If you're living in Babylon, you've just left your family. You're concerned about your family. You've just left your land, your home, your property. You're living in a foreign land. You don't speak the language. You don't eat their foods. Like all of these things are so true. And in a list of concerns that may flood your mind, where would you place false teachers on that list? Where would you place like being concerned about false teaching, listening to, believing in, hearing false teaching? Like it would be at the very bottom of the list, would it not? But for God, it's at the, it's at the top of the list. Like in the list of things that God is concerned about for you as you live in a foreign land in the city of God, in the city of man, what God places at the top of the list is a concern for right theology. That's what he's saying saying prophets are gonna rise up and they're gonna declare things to you. Don't believe them, they're not from me. That's a good thing for us. That's a good thing for us to remember because theology touches everything. That oftentimes you and I, we wanna relegate theology just into one category of our lives, the things that we believe about God. But as we use as a quote here often, we say, as Tozer said, what enters your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that is so true. That what you believe about God and how he works, his character and his nature, it touches every single thing about your life. And that's why good theology is so important that even that's why when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, those things work together for the, the faithfulness of God. They really declare to us the faithfulness of God. The sovereignty of God and the goodness of God declare to us, they teach us, the faithfulness of God. And there is a direct correlation between our understanding and our belief, our assurance of the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful to his promises, that God good in his heart. There is a direct correlation between our understanding, our assurance of God's faithfulness and our confidence and our hope and our in the future. That in fact... That when you and I, when we have a high view, when we have a high view of assurance of the faithfulness of God, and I built this little chart, 
that when you and I have um, a high view of the faithfulness of God, when we have assurance of the faithfulness of God, that God is working faithfully in our lives, that the outworking of that is that we are confident. We're confident, we're bold, we're trusting. That's the kind of lives that we live. Like in fact, whenever the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't use hope like we use hope. Hope is something we say this often, but it's a concept that's hijacked. It's just incorrect in our understanding in, in our culture that when we say hope, it's something that may or may not happen. But when the Bible uses hope, it uses it as confidence. It's something that will happen. It may not, it's not, it may happen, it may not happen. It is, no, this will happen. So when God declares in Jeremiah 29, 11, that you, I have a hope, you have a hope and a future. What he's saying is you can have confidence in the future despite your present circumstances. Why? Because I am faithful. That's what he's declaring. And that is what he's saying. That when you have a high understanding, a high view of the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. The life that you're gonna live is gonna be a confident, bold, and trusting life. And when you have a low view of the sovereignty of God, when you have a low view of the faithfulness of God, when you have a low view of the goodness of God, the type of life that you live will be a life that's governed by fear and anxiety, fretting the times, withdrawing from culture, and living in isolation. Now, I'm not talking about COVID-19 isolation. I'm just talking about withdrawing from the culture. When you have a low view of the faithfulness of God, when you have a low view of the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, God's working all things out for, for his glory and our good. When you, that, when, that's a, when you have a low view, a low confidence, a low assurance in that thing, then it's gonna lead you to be fearful, anxious, angry, and withdrawn. You're gonna freak out. That's what that means. When you have a low view of the faithfulness of God, you will freak out. When persecution comes, when Christianity is pressed into the margins, when you wake up someday and you find that they've taken off and God we trust from the coins, they've removed it, statues have been removed. When all of these types of things happen, it will lead you to freak out. And ultimately why? Because you have a low view of the faithfulness of God. And that's why good teaching is so important. And I remind you of that because it's in the text, but I also remind you of that because tons of teaching is so accessible to us these days. Good teaching and bad teaching. Good memes and bad memes. Good clips and bad clips. Good blogs and bad blogs. And we need to be discerning in these times. And one of the ways to be discerning is, does this teaching, does this truth do the words that this dude is saying or screaming at or whatever it is, sometimes, sometimes, I mean, it's the truth. False teachers are so charismatic. They sound so passionate. But listen, does it lead me to have a high view in the faithfulness of God? Does it leave me feeling hopeful or in despair? Does this teaching, does this thing, does it incite fear about the times or does it... Does it say, hey, like, I'm not saying don't be suspicious, don't be you know, skeptical, don't be concerned about the times, but ultimately our attitude should be that we're, trust, that we're trusting in those times. Be discerning in what we're taking in. I think it's a good word for us. Number one is be confident. Confident in how you live because God is sovereign and good. Number two is settle in, take up residency in Babylon. 
It's a little surprising, is it not? Verses five and six that come as God tells them how to live in the city of man, how to live in Babylon. Look at verse number five, build houses and live in them. What he's saying is, hey, look, you're gonna be there a while. No need in renting, right? Build a house, buy a house, get some real estate. You're gonna be here a while. Plant a garden, eat your produce from it. That's a, that's a good thing he's saying there. Hey, it's okay, plant a garden. And some of you, we're doing that, right? We're planting a garden, share some produce, eat some produce. Look, verse six, take some wives, take wives, not take some wives, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. God's grace in marriage is there. Give your daughters away in marriage that they may, mar- that they may bear sons and daughters. Look at this word, multiply there and do not decrease. That's when we got down, you know? We're living in Babylon, but we're, we're multiplying. Praise God, we're not multiplying enough. We need more kids around here, just saying. Living in the city, what do we need? In the, what do we need in the city of man when we live in the city of man? Well, we need some tomatoes and we need some kids. So y'all have at it. Some of you doing your part. We, Luann and I moved a child out this week and I'm trying to figure out a way to move another child in. Do our part. We need more kids. That's his word. Next, pull down roots, he says. Live in the foreign land. That's what he's saying. Live in the foreign land. And that doesn't mean blend in. This isn't a prescription for them to adopt the the culture and the value of, of, of the city of man, of the Babylon. Certainly this isn't saying assimilate to their values, assimilate to the culture. That's not what he's saying. And how do we know this? Well, remember that um, what's running parallel at, at, at Je- uh, Jeremiah is Daniel. The book of Daniel is running parallel and happening at the same time as Jeremiah is writing this letter, Daniel is happening. Remember how Daniel begins? It begins with three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they refuse to bow a knee to King Nebuchadnezzar, even though they're living in Babylon and they're persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. And ultimately what that story, what that prophecy, what that event is about, it's about the faithfulness of God that we are held by a fidelity to worship God and to worship God alone. And God is faithful to those things. And so in no way is God saying to them, adopt the values of the culture. No, he's still saying the same thing that he would say to us. It's the tension that you and I find ourselves, even in America today, is live in the world, but don't be of the world. That's what he's saying. Live in Babylon, but don't be of the, of the Babylonians. Live there, but don't be about their business. What he's saying is, is take up residency there. Live as alien residents. My parents, a few years ago, my parents started uh, snowbirding it, started going down to Florida. They eventually bought a house in Florida and they own a house in Clearwater, Florida. And Clearwater, Florida is a, it's an odd little town. It really is. For those of you that have traveled there, maybe you've noticed it, but I've been there enough going to see my parents and going there on vacation. I've been there enough to be around to notice some of the, the differences that it is than even of us here in America. That it's a, it's a, it's a different world because people have moved to Clearwater from like, you know, by and large up north, like where it's cold. They've done the wise thing. They've moved out of the cold regions and they moved to the sunshine city and they bought land and they've taken up residency there. 
They've started businesses there. In fact, there's a knockoff Skyline Chili um, that my, my mom sometimes goes to. They're in Clearwater, Florida, where they serve Cincinnati-style chili. You go in and they've got Reds, Cincinnati Reds memorabilia hanging up and the Bengals. It's a real depressing place when you go in there because it's the Reds and the Bengals in there. My mom will sometimes go there on Sundays and it's just that picture of there's a there's a flavor of Cincinnati there in Clearwater, Florida that you're not even gonna find here. I mean, we don't even have a place in Frankfurt where you can find Cincinnati chili. There's whatever, you know, 60 miles from Cincinnati. We don't even have that, but you gotta go, you can go to Clearwater, you can get that. My parents have become residents of the Sunshine State. My mom and dad's driver's license says Florida on it, but let me tell you, my parents are Kentucky through and through. They've moved out of Kentucky, but Kentucky has not moved out of them. They are bluegrass through and through. They are resident aliens. They reside there, but their home, their culture, their people, their family is still in Kentucky. And that is what the word of the Lord is saying here. That's what Jeremiah, God is saying through Jeremiah to them. You find yourself in Babylon, but here's what I want you to do. Build houses, start families, multiply there. Don't decrease just like you were in Egypt. You're used to this. It's in your DNA. Plant gardens, seek the welfare of the city. For where you find, when you find the welfare there, you'll find it for yourselves. Live in it, but never ever forget that your home is someplace else. You're living in Babylon, but even living in Babylon, he says, has an expiration date on it. You're gonna live there for 70 years. Now, most of these folks will die. A new generation will rise up, but it has an expiration date on it. It's not your home. It reminds me of Philippians 3.20. I feel like I've been using that a lot lately, and I think it's just a reminder for us in the times that we live in, just to remember that our citizenship, Christian, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. That you and I, we are resident aliens in the United States of America. Years ago, I went to visit my aunt and uncle and, you know, it's churches put up marquees and when you got a marquee, then you're forced to put something on them. I'm thankful for the folks that, uh, I'm thankful for the folks at Thornhill Baptist Church that for the last few years, there's just said Welcome. I think it's a great message for the church. Hey, welcome. But when you have a marquee and each week you're going to try or each month you're going to try to put up something new and you want to try to make it a theme. And so once to visit my aunt and uncle and on their marquee out front, it says, may the stars and stripes wave forever. That's what their church said. May the stars and stripes, may the flag of the United States of America, may it wave forever. Now, I hope God preserves America for as long as there is a, a current heaven right? I'm in a current earth here. I hope God preserves that. But when we get to heaven, it's not going to be the stars and stripes waving for forever. That's not an anti-patriotic thing to say. It's the reality for us as Christians. That what we're looking for to reign forever is the reign of Jesus. That's what we're looking for. Paul says our citizenship. Don't ever forget your citizenship. You and I, we're dual citizens. We're alien residents here in this land. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing he's saying to them. You're living in Babylon, but you're not Babylonian. You'll always be my people and someday you will return to Zion. Lastly, go to work. Go to work. Notice that he says we're to seek two things in this text. Twice he tells the people to seek something. 
You're looking for something. I don't know how you seek for something, but that's work is involved. That's where I'm getting go to work and seeking. Seek God and the good of the land. Look at verse number seven. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Verse number 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. We're told twice to seek two things and two things we're to pray for. We're seeking for these two things. And as we're seeking, it's not just our own efforts in doing so, but we're, we're doing it prayerfully. We're praying to God in these things. These are endeavors that weigh upon our heart. We're to seek the welfare of the city, but second, we're also to seek the Lord. He says, when you pray to me, I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. What a beautiful text of scripture. Honestly, in Jeremiah 29, 11, I think that's the more, I mean, Jeremiah chapter 29, that's the more important text for us than verses 11. I think verse 12 is more important than 11. Or I'm sorry, 13, verse 13. To seek God with your whole heart, be wholeheartedly devoted to him in your seeking of him. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What a wonderful promise. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. We're told to seek the welfare of the city. Now, welfare is not the best translation of the word that's being used. That some of you, and maybe in your translation, it may say, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. And that's a pretty, that's probably a better than welfare of the city, but ultimately it's the Hebrew word shalom is what's being used there. Seek the shalom of the city. And I think we'd be remiss as we're drawing, as the Old Testament's drawing it in and this Bible study uh, and time for us in this sermon series, we'd probably be remiss if we didn't talk about shalom because it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's a concept. And the concept is, 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 would be the picture for us, not just welfare, not just peace and prosperity, but a flourishing. That's what shalom is. And so shalom is what uh, Adam and Eve experienced in the garden pre-fall. They had shalom, they had peace, and they had prosperity with one another, uh, with, even with creation and with God. They were experiencing that. What they were experiencing was they were experiencing flourishing. And what's broken in the fall by man's sin is the shalom. That's what's broken in our world is uh, the, the apostle Paul writes about it and he says that the world is, uh, is, is been subject to futility. That's what he's saying. And what he means by that is the peace and the prosperity and not just peace as in the absence of conflict and the absence of war, but just peace and harmony within creation and within us and with, especially between us and God. It has been broken. And so Hebrews would use, the Jewish people would use shalom as a, as a word of, of greeting. They would say to one another, shalom to you. And what it is, it's a word of blessing. It's saying, I bless shalom upon you. That means I, I hope that you flourish in every way. I wanna see you flourish spiritually and socially and economically flourish. And what God says here is I want you to seek and I want you to pray for the shalom of Babylon. That's your enemy. That's a land you didn't want to go to. That's a place where you wouldn't go. All throughout the Bible, like you got Psalm 122, it's a Psalm of ascent. As the children of Israel are coming into Jerusalem to worship God in Israel at a great and high festival, at a feast, they're walking up the hill to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a mountain. As they're, as they're rising, they see the temple, this temple shining brightly. They would sing different Psalms. Psalm 122 would be one of those Psalms that they would sing. And it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. 
May they be secure, those that love you. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. And now what God is saying, I want you to pray for the shalom of Babylon, the city of man. And not just pray for it, I want you to seek it. I want to do your part. Reminds us of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, when Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's a reminder for those of us as Christians that even those who we see as our enemies, they are also our mission field. Those people that don't, that no longer live and they, their ethics and their values and their ideas and their ideologies and their worldviews no longer match up to ours. That when we see within our culture and with a world, a world that is moving further and further from Jesus and a political ethic, it really questions how do we see them? Do we see them with disdain or with compassion? Do we see them with self-righteousness and anger or and contempt or brokenhearted, humble prayers being offered up for them? It's a call to be like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He sees the brokenness of the people and in their idolatry and in their sin, and he has moved to compassion in the same way that Jesus does. Moments before Jesus is going to turn his life over to the religious leaders. And even when Jesus does, remember Jesus on the cross and he looks at the Romans and what does he pray? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's about to give his life for Jerusalem. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps, he cries. Jerusalem, he laments for the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not come. Jeremiah is moved by the same compassion. May you and I be moved by the same compassion. We're told to seek the Lord, to seek him with all of our hearts. It's a picture of repentance and restoration and transformation. That is, we have wholehearted worship in finding the Lord and in sharing the Lord, that when we find the Lord, he changes us and he changes our hearts. He changes our hearts to love like his. How can Jesus call us and demand for us to love our enemies, to love those who are unlike us, those who are against us, those who persecute us? How can he do that? Here's how he can do it, because ultimately he's going to place that kind of love in us. As we seek him and as we worship him, he changes us. He changes us and he changes our hearts that we may love like him. And may that be true of us. Ultimately for us, as we think about Jeremiah 29, 11, we know that Jesus is our hope and our future. That Paul says in Colossians that when Jesus Christ returns, he who is our life. I love that picture. Jesus, when Christ who is our life returns, and this is quite the picture, Jesus is our life. The promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is that God is faithful. He's faithful to exiles. It's the picture brought up by both Peter and Paul in the, in the New Testament that we as Christians, we live as exiles and God is faithful for those of us who live on foreign soul, soil. He's faithful to gather us again, to bless us again with real shalom. It's the truth that nothing on this earth has its final say. Your plans may evaporate, your dreams may be crushed, your life may even be snuffed out. But the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will raise you up with him also. When Christ who is our life returns, Christ is our hope and Christ is our future. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for that promise that you are our life and you are our future. 
Jesus, we give you worship. Lord, we pray that in this, as we think about just your sovereignty, as we think about your goodness, your faithfulness to us, that Lord, we would just, our confidence would rise, our boldness to live bold lives, trusting, proclaiming the gospel, loving others around us and doing that well, Lord, that would be on the rise, Lord. Lord, stir, stir up, if I, as I've already prayed, Lord, break up the fallow ground of our hearts, the hardened soil of our hearts. We may have confidence in you and we may love boldly, that we may be stirred up to love, worship, and good works in your name, Lord. And for your glory, I pray that. Amen.